we just identify what's the weakest link of a full project and then double down on this one first. So if we can already prove within day one uh, that a project might be unsuccessful, uh, then we are not losing six months. We're actually just losing a day and we can move on to the next big opportunity. And that way we're maximizing the value we can create as a team. Welcome to AI Experience, the podcast that demystifies artificial intelligence. My name is Julian Rodersberger, and we are going to find out how AI is changing the world. And I'm super happy to welcome Alexandre Gilbo. He founded and leads the AI Accelerator team at TELUS, which is a Canadian telecommunications company. We will talk about AI in the telecommunication world, but also how to manage AI in a team. Thank you for joining me, Alex. How are you today? Hi, Julien. I'm really great. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Sure, yeah. I'm very excited to talk about AI, to talk about management, which is kind of a new topic on my podcast. And just to kick things off, Alex, could you please briefly introduce yourself and, and give our non-Canadian listeners an overview of TELUS and the role in the telecommunications industry? For sure. Um, so I am an electrical engineer specialized in software development and telecommunications. Um, I actually started my career at TELUS a little, a little over 10 years ago. I spent a couple of years doing wireless capacity engineering, software development, and project management. Uh, and then uh, I left to kick off a small mobile application startup. Um, I pursued an MBA around 2015. Uh, and that was around the time uh, that the first major burst in AI and deep learning technologies happened. Um, so I got super involved in the AI community in Montreal, volunteering at Element AI, uh, at the AI Creative Destruction Lab, uh, participating in any tech trainings and hackathons I could find, and reading everything there was back then on AI. Um, I have always been fascinated by mathematics, uh, optimization algorithms, and software engineering. So I really found my passion in machine learning and the whole AI field. Um, I then co-founded an engagement consultant firm uh, before joining Teldus back around seven years ago as a data scientist. I quickly grew from data expert to manager and then director of the AI Accelerator. Mm -hmm. um, as for Teldus, it is worth mentioning that even for Canadians, um, that Teldus is more than a telecommunication company. Um, our offerings go beyond wireline and mobility services, actually. Uh, we offer telephony, internet, television, and many security solutions, but are also offering a vast diversity of products um, and services through our Telus Health, Telus Agriculture, and Telus International divisions. So we now consider ourselves more of a technology company before a telecommunication one. Um, but indeed, we are mainly known for our telecommunication offering for the Canadian population. Okay, okay. And so you are based in Montreal, in Quebec, right? Indeed, yeah. Okay. And so we know in the recent years, uh, we're going to focus a bit on the telecommunication right now, but we know it's been primarily focused on 5G. Now we are seeing a significant shift with AI. Could you just like shed light on the impact and implications of those technological revolutions? What 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 did it change? There there was around all the telecommunication industry a massive investment in media in the past uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, they were buying and owning television and radio channels and producing content. And we've seen through the last 10 years how this industry has been highly impacted by big tech companies such as Meta and Google uh, that have dominated ad revenue. Uh, on top of this, streaming platforms such as Netflix, Disney Plus, or Prime Video have highly reduced the profitability of content production. So the hopes for 5G have been extremely high in the telecommunication industry to cope with those major losses. Um, fortunately, tell us we were in a little bit different situation because we made the call over 10 years ago to not compete on the media side 
rather invest in the growing need for better healthcare and quality food. This really helped us to set us apart and is fueling our success in the long run. Um, but now, as you mentioned, all those industries, uh, including telecommunication, the integration of AI can be a real game changer. Telecommunication, in particular, is probably the best suited industry to leverage AI, given its massive amount of data we collect from the network at any given time. To give an example, like just consider the fact that we have over 30,000 antennas covering the country, uh, combining multiple frequencies, multiple technologies like LTE, 5G, and on, um, that are individually collecting thousands of KPIs every single minute. Could be throughput, packet loss, or drop calls. Uh, we were clearly dealing with big data way before it became a buzzword. So we have been using statistical modeling and machine learning to predict mobility demand and capacity forecasting uh, for decades. Uh, any new frequency antenna or tower addition takes a long time to deliver. So we need to provide ample time for the real estate team to get the proper leases, uh, to the engineers to prepare the configurations, and to the construction team to build the required infrastructure. Our capacity forecasting methods have really helped the company save tens of millions each year uh, by investing the right areas while maintaining network superiority. Of course, AI has been used uh, through the years, thousands of other examples. Um, I could go into a few like proactive equipment maintenance, uh, optimizing our data center's cooling systems, or predicting hardware fraud in store. Um, the major difference that really happened in the last 12 months uh, that you might be referring to is the advanced generative AI. All the use cases that we've been tackling before were mainly leveraging structured data, so data that could fit in a table, such as an Excel sheet, for example. Um, generative AI actually brought uh, enhanced ability to leverage unstructured data, such as text, uh, voice, video, mm -hmm. um, to now leverage AI. So it's opening the door to massively more use cases, and that's where you see a boom happening in this industry. Uh, we actually estimate that over 80% of the data we have access to today is unstructured, and we couldn't really completely leverage that before this year. So those new technologies have already driven massive change in areas such as providing self-serve capabilities in our HR systems, IT systems, uh, could help create assistance for sales, uh, for developers, for our communication team, and even for our technicians. So what you're saying is AI has not been created with ChatGPT. <laughs> it was there before, right? <laughs> no, no, indeed, indeed. And ChatGPT is not replacing the previous technologies. It's just opening the door to new use cases. Because sometimes, I mean, I don't know about you, but like I'm, I'm seeing so much publications and posts and content about AI these days. But before November 2022, like we did not really talk about AI a lot. That's true. But you worked a lot in that space, yeah. right? How would you explain that? Why, why would you say generative AI has been such a boom in the public? Like, I mean, for everyone, like not only the specialists, but like also like general public. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's because it gave the access of those technologies in the hand of everybody. Previously, you, you had to be a software engineer, uh, you had to be a data scientist, you had to have like really high technical skills to be able to interact with uh, all this massive amount of data and build machine learning models. Um, now with, with just your voice or just while write, writing natural language, you can start to interact with the computer, start to interact with all the AI technologies and get output out of this. So this is really opening the door for everybody to start using those technologies. Hence, it created this kind of buzz that now everybody can start to, to use. So I know inside of Telos, uh, a couple of uh, executives got really excited about, about the AI technologies we were already driven because they heard their kids starting to use uh, ChatGPT and, and they saw like how impressive those technologies were. So it really 
put all of those uh, um, complex technologies in a really concrete way that people can really see from themselves how it can produce value. So you've been working in the AI sphere for quite a long time. Did you see ChatGPT coming? Were you surprised when you saw what it could do uh, back like in 2022? Yeah, I have to be honest. I, I was surprised for sure. Uh, I didn't see that coming. But at the same time, um, I, th I could have, I think. Um, and, and maybe many others would have. Because like the, the model uh, ChatGPT is based on, uh, GPT-3, um, was already out there. And we could already see how it was amazing at completing sentences. We could already use it for translation, uh, for asking questions and complementing, uh, completing the answer, sorry. Um, and and we, we could have predicted that like the next step would be to create that in, in terms of a chatbot. So they just added a little bit of magic in there by doing reinforcement learning with human in the loop and trying to to set the context of those uh, big language models to be able to interact and, and, and answer questions and understand the full context of the conversation. So that's something that we could envision, but I have to be honest, I haven't seen it be, becoming that big and es es especially not that quick. Yeah, sure. So I guess ChatGPT and generative AI is part of the conversation within the AI Accelerator team at TELUS, uh, where you work. Could you please just tell us a little bit about what you do, the size of your team and your role and responsibilities over there. Yeah, totally. So for sure, Generative AI added a new layer that we will discuss later, but like we've still been in business for uh, about six years now. So we started as a really small team of roughly seven data experts, and I've been growing to around 50 machine learning engineers today. Really, our mission from the start has been to help Telus uh, to increase their AI maturity and readiness and to position Telus as a leader in AI. Uh, we've been able to build this trust uh, that I was referring to and by presenting the plus value of leveraging insights uh, to create real uh, cost savings or revenue generation for the company. So we have this simplest yet challenging ob objective each year. So we measure our success by only two goals, measuring both what the business and what the team wants. So first, to secure the investment and uh, commitment from the business towards us, we're ensuring we show a positive business case for our team. We report on the total EBITDA generated by our initiative for the business on a yearly basis. It's funny, Alex, because like you work for Telus, which is a super big company, but it seems that you work more for a startup. Like, you know, you have that mindset vocabulary of a startup manager. Am I mistaken? <laughs> Not at all. I'm crazy that you, you saw that already. Um, that's how everybody in the team are defining our group. We're trying to, and the, the, the way I've been saying that, that like I'm giving the business what it needs so like we can have the room and the space to do what we need mm -hmm. is that we're trying to differentiate ourselves a bit from big org with like, uh, multiple red tape and taking a lot of time to get funding or or to to make uh, bigger changes. Uh, we always try to shield the team from that. Uh, so the team is really acting as a startup. We're trying to to uh, have as much flexibility as possible. Really uh, care about each team members, create close relationships with each of them, include them in the decision making, empower them to do more. Uh, we're trying to have uh, really get the most of what we see out there from any startup. So so yeah, the, the full team, uh, including myself, were trying to consider ourselves as a startup, but we have the best of both worlds. Yeah. We actually have the funding and the security of job that like a big company can offer mm -hmm. and the full flexibility uh, and, and creativity a startup is offering. And so you as a manager, like, uh, is it different to manage an AI 
team compared to a more traditional tech team? Like, what are the big differences or the big challenges? Oh yeah, um, I think it's it's really really different. Um, I, I like to position this like. Um, how we needed to adapt to various eras of technology. So if we start with the um, industrial era, we had to develop the waterfall methodology to uh, really, really uh, plan a project from beginning to the end, knowing like what will happen at any step and knowing where you're getting. Uh, with the software and technological industry, as we've been doing it uh, with the advance of internet and software engineering, we knew where we wanted to go, but didn't know exactly how to get there. We had to... Uh, uh, like break uh, the, any big problem uh, into smaller chunks, uh, divide and conquer, and adopt the uh, agile approach to deliver the the, the value in a in short uh, sprints. Um, now, with the way I see this, with um, the new data and AI age we're entering, most of the time you don't know exactly what you're trying to get to, and you don't know how to get there. Uh, so neither the waterfall or agile methodology completely applies there. So we had to develop a new way to tackle this. Um, we have a name, we're calling it Felfast right now. I don't know if it will be the official name coming in later, um, but applying Felfast is actually uh, about considering the opportunity cost of everything you're doing, because we're all uh, biased toward like winning and making a success of everything we're doing. That's, that's part of our education. We never like to fail, um, but we forget to look at everything else we might be f uh, missing while we are uh, being hard-headed and trying to make a project succe a success. So we have a choice here. We could spend six months to dedicate ourselves to a project, maybe get to a win or or fake it some way. People are still doing that, making make, making the matrix look like a portion of that was a win. But like if we consider six months time um, uh, that we uh, are hard-headed to make a, a something successful, we might be missing like 10 other opportunities that might have been bigger. So the, the, the mindset of Felfast is actually to identify what's the weakest link uh, we see in a project. And it could be anywhere. It could be about the uh, quality of the data. It could be about the engagement from the stakeholders. It could be the technology. It could be uh, access to the infrastructure to, to deploy that. We just identify what's the weakest link of a full project and then double down on this one first. So if we can already prove within day one uh, that a project might be unsuccessful, uh, then we are not losing six months. We're actually just losing a day and we can move on to the next big opportunity. And that way we're maximizing the value we can create as a team. And so usually how long does it take for you to understand that, okay, this project's gonna work, this project's not gonna work? Like, is it like based on intuition, data, experience? Like how do you, how would you say it works? Um, I think it's a little bit of everything, uh, a little bit less of intuition, but intuition can help for sure. Um, the, the way we do this is it's an ongoing process. We never really fail completely. It's not that we completely say this project is, is bound to fail and we drop it. We actually have a, a special methodology we call risk-weighted EBITDA, estimated EBITDA. So what that means is uh, we are estimating the, the plus value of a project. Like we know, oh, we could get a million dollar saving here or $2 million revenue you there, um, but then apply just a risk factor based on that. So knowing our success rate on some projects, uh, we can already apply a factor on top of that. So I, I don't know, if 80% of our projects are successful, we can apply an 80% factor on this. So the 1 million become uh, 800,000s. Um, so once we have this number, we can compare this to the, the other project. And the risk factor will actually... Uh, 
be uh, adjusting through time as you secure some stuff. So for example, when we start a project, uh, we always secure uh, privacy and security first. If they are on our side and say, yes, this is, this is good, we already know we have a high, higher likelihood to, uh, to succeed on this project. So the 80% might become 90%. And based on this change, we can then recompare and reassess all of our portfolio. So what I mean here is that we might have 10 projects. Uh, none will completely fail, but some will be prioritized over others, depending on the risk factor and what we secured uh, on our path. Could you give us a couple of examples of projects you're working on, if it's possible? We have actually a big portfolio. I think we have always over 100 projects that we're constantly working on. Top of mind, because I, I think it fits into like this uh, R&D kind of uh, hypothesis testing approach. I can explain. We had, uh, I think, so over a year ago, um, the marketing team, home solution marketing team, uh, came to us and wanted to uh, explore if we could help to create a model to predict if someone is likely to be interested into a home security solution. Um, so we started with a hypothesis with them. Uh, we thought that uh, probably in high crime areas, people would people would be more likely to be interested into home security solutions. So uh, for sure, we started by securing privacy and security and making sure that we had like the stakeholder on board and willing to act on, on the data we were providing. So we started with with uh, the, the proper setup to ensure that this project was likely to, to be successful before really digging into collecting the right data and testing the hypothesis. Once that done, we did like a small initial test um, and we validated that like, yes, there is a correlation between high crime rate and interest for home solution, but not as big as we were expecting. So that wasn't like really uh, the, 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 the biggest finding we could find there. Uh, so we, we started to dig a little bit more into this data and, and try to understand it more. And I think we figured it out without like completely proving it, but we, we think that uh, probably there's also a correlation between uh, high crimes and poverty. And may maybe there's less uh, money remaining on the table for people to buy a home security solution. Mm -hmm. um, but the most important finding we found through the data is that people are not that impacted by the crime rate, but a sudden change in the crime rate. So if there's a spike in crimes in their area, then they become a really... Uh, um, uh, incentivized to to secure their home because now like people are talking about it. So once we dis discovered this new insight uh, inside of the data, we could use that to to test for sure another hypothesis testing. And we went through various uh, phases of uh, hypothesis te testing like that until we had a, a bunch of insights like that that we could consider to create proper feature engineering and then feed a machine learning model. Uh, that we, we built to uh, finally predict who's likely to be interested to home security solution. So really the way we build this model is not to just dig into the data, but be have a uh, uh, close uh, relationship with uh, the business team, uh, do various testing, learn from it, and then move from smaller, simple insights to bigger technologies uh, that could really uh, help. Uh, this business. Okay. And so who decide what kind of project your team is going to work on? Like, is it you say, I have an ID, you, you guys should work on that? Or is it because like the marketing guys can talk to me, the finance guys can talk to me and they have an ID or they have a, uh, an issue and we need to fix that? Yeah. How does that work? And how do you prioritize projects? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, so actually, we try to have 
we reconstruct actually all of our machine learning engineers as business consultants that happen to uh, know AI. So we're never trying to uh, find where we can apply AI in the company. For me, like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You're not trying to apply AI everywhere, but more uh, try to find what's the biggest challenge any business units have. Mm -hmm. So we started by more, uh, we call it a push mold. So trying, because we weren't that known, uh, we were a small group, so we were knocking at everybody's door and trying to understand what the, what's their current business challenge. And through the time, we figured out that like 99% of any business challenge uh, uh, can actually be enhanced or solved with data. We have so much data today, the data is, is probably giving some key insights that can really solve uh, or help solve any business problem. So the way we do is really uh, interacting with other teams, trying to identify those problems, and then finding the right data or the right technologies that can support and, and solve those problems. This shifted a little bit in the past year, given all the hype around Genev AI. And now people are really interested uh, about the things we're doing. We had a lot of visibility internally. Uh, so now we're more in a pull mode. So we have like an intake form, people bring in their problems to us. Uh, we have uh, a five day, five business day timeframe to uh, sync with them, give them feedback and co-develop with them what would be the solution. But again, it's never about finding uh, where we can apply the technology, but where are the critical business problem and then figure out how technology can help solve uh, those problems. Okay, okay, that's interesting. And so you're, you're working with like AI experts, business consultants, so does that mean you have to understand everyone's business at TELUS? Because I guess every department is different in healthcare and telecommunications. So how deep should you go before making a decision? Yeah, this, this is another really good question. Um, that, that's why I, I define my, time, my, my team more as uh, business consultants that happen to be really good with AI uh, rather than AI experts that does a little bit of business consultancy. I think we really need to dig into the real problem, uh, sometimes re-questioning a little bit the way people are seeing stuff because people are uh, sometimes are biased a little bit by those technologies. They, they, they might think uh, Journey of AI is the solution to everything uh, right now because of the hype. So, so we need to really ask the right question and investigate uh, what's the real issue they are having. Um, and sometimes we need to get deep into the, the, the problem they, they are having. Um, I know previously uh, th there was a, a big say that like data scientists needed to be uh, um, business experts, uh, mathematical experts, and uh, software developer experts. So it was a mix of those three. I actually uh, believe right now, um, or actually in my team, uh, the data scientists don't need to know everything, don't need to be an expert in marketing or an expert in finance and or an expert in health, uh, but needs to have this uh, curiosity and willingness to understand uh, how the uh, business is working, uh, have the communication skills to ask the right question, um, and uh, co-develop and brainstorm with other teams to find what's the, the real um, solution and or even what's the real problem they're having before we, we start talking about solutions. And so how do you train your team to do that? Because not everyone is curious by nature. So how do you help them to grow professionally, to, uh, to, to ask the right questions and to be a valuable business consultant? <laughs> this is another really good question. Um, so... We for sure we select our candidates based on their uh, on their soft skills mostly. So like the curiosity is something really important. Uh, we we care less about somebody that knows everything because this field is moving so fast uh, that if they don't keep up within six months they they, they will be outdated. So so we need people that. Uh, are not already knowing everything, but are willing to learn every single day 
uh, and have the right attitude to uh, ask questions and be interested about others and, and share with their colleagues as well. Uh, no single uh, employee can uh, know it all today or follow every news that is happening. But if they are collaborative uh, and they speak with each other, they can really uh, help each other grow and be aware about like most of the stuff that, I, that is happening in the field. Um, we also have uh, some managers in the team that have uh, past consultancy experience, uh, some that work with Deloitte or McKinsey, um, that really help to uh, set the tone a little bit for the team. Uh, they, they need to develop their, their, their um, data science skill sets and AI skill sets for sure, but they also need to develop on their soft skill and approach and, and problem solving uh, and how to uh, frame a problem uh, with any business unit. So uh, we are actively working on, on making sure people grow not just on their technical standpoint, but also on their personal and uh, interpersonal standpoint. Okay. So I was saying you, you you work in Montreal. Your team, I guess, works in Montreal. Uh, are you guys no, remote? No, not really. Actually, we're only three in Montreal in the 50. Oh. Uh, most of the people are in Toronto. Some are in Vancouver. Um, I think we have a couple in, in Calgary as well. Okay. So are they working remotely or are they working like in TELUS? Uh, yeah, offices? they do. So TELUS has been one of the pioneers to uh, introduce uh, remote work. Actually, we didn't uh, start uh, only during the pandemic. Already when I joined joined around 2011, we were uh, working remotely. Um, that really helped to uh, to make sure that we can collaborate with everyone across the country. Uh, we had a hybrid approach back then, so we were working a couple of days at the office, and it still brings a lot of value to see your colleagues in person. Um, but we weren't restricted to people in the city. We were working with everyone. Um, we started uh, at the same time as Yahoo. I think Yahoo was one of the first company, and, and Telus quickly followed and continued to maintain this uh, this uh, remote uh, work uh Culture. And how do you make sure you work as a team? Like, do you see each other like a few times a year? Like, do you travel to see all your colleagues and teams across the country? We do sometimes, and we'll we would love to do more uh, because we clearly see the value into that. Uh, but uh, this team started, um, um, and, and the pandemic hit it really fast. So we already started to uh, be kind of forced to to be remote uh, all time for for a year or two. Um, so we had to develop some methodologies to ensure that there's team cohesion, that we keep the, the right culture, the, the right uh, fun environment uh, while we work and had the chance to be surrounded by amazing managers that really cared about their team members and cared about not creating silos within the mm -hmm. team. Um, so we, we always have that top of mind, making sure that people are not... Uh, um, restricted to their own working team and not seeing what others are working on, uh, are still uh, hearing and having inside jokes with their colleagues. Uh, we're having sessions each month where we, we do trivia, that we ask questions about uh, other employees and are having fun while doing so. Even for, for Christmas this year, we had a, a holiday party where uh, people were creating memes about their, their managers and having a lot of fun. Um, so we um, it, it's tough to... to, to put the finger on exactly what's the, the magic the magic happening in there. But I, I think um, we have managers that really care deeply about their team, have a lot of empathy, and are trying to uh, make sure that people are having fun while they work. Uh, again, this is, this is one of my key uh, learning to the years that uh, when people are having fun while working, they are much more collaborative, much more innovative, uh, and they bring their whole self to work. Um, so that's something we always double down on. It's easier when you have just two metrics. So again, I'm making sure the business has what they want and the team has what they want. So we, we deeply care about the, the people's feeling and people's happiness at work. 
Okay, so for you as a manager, management is also about budgets and money. So you work for Telus, big company, of course. We assume lots of money to go into AI project, but how do you manage to get your funding? And uh, and and is it difficult sometimes to uh, I don't know to defend some some project that you see value that may not come until uh, like a very long time? Yeah, and I, I think it's a it's a challenge for any data science team really because like the likelihood of success for any project is is really low. Um, even like if I think it changed a little bit with generative AI, it's a it's a little bit of a different approach. But on any data driven project, um, they were estimating various analysis estimated that only twenty percent of the project are successful. Wow! So you start a project knowing that like the success rate is only twenty percent. Exactly. So you would wow. fail eight projects before you you <laughs> succeed one. It's 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 uh, you should succeed two actually. Um. So so that's that's a really low score, uh, especially for what we're used to. Um. So like if you go to finance and ask for money, um, and then fail and ask for money again and fail again, they might not uh, invest in you the the third time. Um, so uh, we really try to position ourselves as not like funding each project, but more funding the team. So what we do is we prepare a business case for the team and we kind of not disclose exactly what we'll be working on. We just say, and we build this trust because we started small, uh, that really helped us. But like we started by uh, asking for some funding for a small team and and giving a 5x uh, revenue, not revenue, uh, benefits over what we we, we, we were asking uh, in terms of money for the company. So we, we've maintained this 5x for any new investment coming in our team. And at the end of the year, we just proved that we, uh, through those successful projects, we've been able to generate this value for the organization. And then we can build this trust and make sure that they continuously invest in us. Uh, so I think for our finance, they don't even know that we're failing uh, eight times out of 10. Actually, it's not that our our success rate, fortunately, is much higher than that. But uh, even if we... So let's hope they don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's all good because at the end of the year, we can prove clearly that we had like, I don't know, 50 projects that were successful through the year. And that's the plus value that this brought to the company. Sure. And the fact that we fell fast as well, that we drop a project really quickly if it's bound to fail, it makes it uh, makes the cost really low for, for our failures. We're minimizing the cost of our failures and we're doubling down on, on our successes to make sure that we're profitable. Yeah. So you went from seven people to 50 people in your team. Where do you see that number growing in the future? Like, do you see yourself managing like a hundred people team or how do you think the AI team is going to evolve? Um, I'm not sure. It's always tough to uh, to plan for the future. Like, like we, we said before, even Predicting ChatGPT, uh, I don't think a lot of people were doing that. Actually, even even OpenAI when they released it, they, they were thinking it was a side project. They didn't expect that that big of a buzz. Um, and I think it's the second big buzz that we see in AI in the last ten years. Uh, as I mentioned before, deep learning uh, when it when it became a big thing in 2015, like there there was a lot of interest and a lot of investment coming there. So it's tough to predict what will happen, how uh, when AGI will come. Uh, how will it impact our work? How our, our work will evolve? So, um, I'm I've always been trying to project myself in in the le- next uh, five ten years, but I think right now it's it 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 will most probably be wrong. Um, so uh, I don't know if this team will will grow to 100. 
maybe it will, maybe not. Um, what I'm trying to make sure is that we stay uh, on top of the technologies, trends. Uh, we, we know what's happening out there. We're the first to know because we're constantly reading about that. Um, and we can plan like year over year on what's the best positioning we can have for the success of Telus. Okay. Uh, so 50 right now uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, we'll see if like by the, the end of 2024, it will need to be 75 or 100. Um, we'll figure this out depending on the amount of projects we get, the willingness of the company to to make changes because technology alone doesn't produce value. It's about people and process as well. Uh, so we need to uh, have engaged stakeholders um, uh, in order to really produce value with, with, with what we're offering. And so in your team, you work with so business consultants, data scientists, engineers, probably project managers as well. Do you see any other jobs or professions that are like key in an AI team today? And, and, and what will it be in the future? Um, I think in my team, it's a little bit different than, than what you, you said, actually. The, all of those skill set, we need them in the same person, kind of. So, so we have, wow. we have, AI, <laughs> we, we have a, AI product managers in the team. Um, but uh, consultants, uh, AI experts, uh, uh, data analysts, uh, data visualization experts, they are all the same person. So we, we consider them as unicorns, really. It's tough to find this kind of talent. Yeah, that, that was my next question. Like, how long does it take you to hire someone? Like, it should be created. Um, not that much anymore. So what we figured out is like talent attracts talents. So if we have like really good talent, it's easy to get more. Um, and the reason is, again, this field is moving so fast. If you're a data scientist isolated in a team of engineers of, or, or of marketing folks, uh, you won't be alone, uh, be able to keep up with everything happening. Uh, but when you're uh, in a big team of 50 other data experts that are constantly reading, constantly keeping themselves up to date, that's where you grow as a data scientist and keep, keep up to date with everything happening. So when you have a big team, it's easier to hire more. And when you have high talent it's and, and engage people, it's much uh, easier to attract people as well. So right now uh, we have like, uh, every time we post a role, we have over 200 uh, people applying and a bunch of really, really good candidates in there. Um, so it's never been, well, it's not a, it's not, it hasn't been a challenge in the past two, three years to, to hire the, this kind of talent. And, and what about you? How do you, <clears throat> how do you make sure you are always up to date with everything that's going on into the AI world. Like, could you share your secrets to, I don't know, do you, do you read, do you, do you read a lot of, uh, of website, do you listen to podcasts, do you do some training sessions and course and like, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, actually, um, have to be honest here, I haven't been good at doing that in the last two months. I'm two months late on what I used to do. Mm -hmm. um, what I used to do is to read between 30 to 30 minutes to one hour every single day on, on the news uh, happening on AI. Okay. Um, and I think it's required. I think like any data scientists or machine learning engineers today should spend 30 minutes at least of their day reading about what's happening. Like every Every single day, there's major releases, uh, new uh, GitHub projects that you can leverage, new products out there, new research that like discovers something completely new that disrupts the way we were doing that before. Um, so I think it's really important for any uh, any machine learning engineers to to read every single day or listen to podcasts or or uh, do some trainings. Um, it, it's really important to, to keep up with all of that. Uh, but even I, um, for me, I'm, I'm still passionate, passionate about this, this whole field and I, I want 
want to do it. Um, but the last two months I've been really involving, uh, so I, I, I'm late a little bit. So, uh, um, but yeah, I think it's extremely important to to read uh, and and be aware about what's happening. I didn't mention training, but I, I would take that back. Uh, creating a training takes some time. Uh, even a university course takes a lot of time. Uh, as an example, when I was studying in telecommunication, uh, they were on the slides, they were saying, I remember mm-hmm. uh, the future LTE technologies. While in all of our pockets, we already had LTE uh, compatible phones. So like it's it's long to build a course and, and to, to teach people about that. And this field is moving so fast. Every single week, there's major releases happening. So if you wait for training, to get started, training is good. But once you're in there, um, it's not about training. It's about like what's what's the latest release and any new release. So training is good, but it's not enough. Yeah, right? I think it's it sets the basis. It's important to to understand the, the basics there and not start with the highest technologies if you don't understand the basics. Else, you you'll get completely lost at some point. So training is 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 the base, the foundation. But then you need to keep up every single day about like everything happening in there. And there's multiple resources. There's YouTube videos. Uh, there's uh, there's a newsletter, there's podcasts, there's multiple ways you can you can consume that, but for sure you need to constantly uh, be interested. So the, again, curiosity is one of the most important traits for, for anybody joining my team. Don't you ever feel like overwhelmed because there is just so much and, and you can't keep up with everything? Like, you, you know the acronym FOMO, like the fear of missing out? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you feel that sometimes? I do. I do. Um, it's uh, and that, and that's why I, w- I want to make sure everyone in the team cooperate to make sure that we're we're not missing out on everything and we we know about the latest trends and everything happening. Um, but uh, yeah, totally, I can uh, empathize with that. We we all feel sometimes FOMO uh, in that field. It's it's so tough to keep up with everything happening. So last question for you, Alex. What advice would you share with someone who would like to join your team or who would like to work for AI at a big, big, big company, big tech company? So I think you need to be passionate about this clearly because like it's not a field where you will become an expert at some point and you can sit on your laurels and and and, and answer people on everything they, they bring to you. You'll never be really an expert. You, you always need to keep up. You always need to re-question yourself. You need to to uh, be willing to learn more, have this curiosity and this passion for the, for the field. Uh, if you're not passionate after... After some time, you'll feel uh, disgusted by all the, the the new research paper that you have to read uh, and and uh, having to always reinvent yourself. So uh, curiosity is extremely important. Um, soft skills are extremely important. Being willing to collaborate with others, being a, a good communicator, uh, being having empathy. Um, so uh, I think soft skills are, are are really important and passion for AI. It's even more important than technical skills. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining me. So at the end of each episode, the guest answers a question posed by the previous guest. Are you ready? Yep. Cool. So right after that, you'll have the opportunity to ask a question yourself for our next guest. So here's your question, courtesy of Sean Chan, PhD candidate in computer science at the University of Chicago, who contributed to the development of a tool called Glaze to protect people from malicious uses of AI. And here's his question. All right. So my question is, 10 years later, what do you think is the biggest challenge AI face? Interesting. Okay. So the the question is what AI will face or what we will face to apply AI? Uh, It depends how you interpret the question. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I'll let you choose, actually. Okay. All right. So I, I think in 10 years from now, uh, a lot of people are thinking actually AGI will be out there. Uh, we can't be sure, but 
there's a lot of researchers that think we'll have uh, artificial general intelligence. Um, and then uh, it might be a huge disruptor. Uh, people are expecting uh, that once uh, AI gets to this point, uh, it will really start to replace a lot of roles uh, and completely transform the work field. Sorry, Alex, could you just explain the difference between generative AI and general AI? Like what it is exactly? Yeah, it's totally. Sorry about that. Uh, so generative AI is, is uh, an AI that can uh, start to uh, um, reason uh, this is the first small steps of AI into reasoning. So that's why when you chat with chat, you you interact with ChatGPT, you can start to ask some uh, more complex question, and it will reason and 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 find uh, a proper answer for for what you're doing. But right now, um, it's still uh, it it knows more than any human being because it's been trained on all the data on the internet. But it's not a reasoning as good as a human. So it's still way below on many uh, different uh, benchmarks than a human being. What we consider AGI, so artificial general intelligence, is the time where we'll have actually an AI that is capable of doing more uh, reasoning than a human being. So at that point, a lot of people are seeing that as as a really a big disruption of everything. Uh, It's really science fiction, but it's, it's nearly there. And that, that's when an AI will, will become better than human. And then there's no limit to how good it can get because it can retrain itself and, and learn more and re-question itself. So that, that will be the big dis- disruption happening. And I think the, the challenge we'll face as, as, as humanity is like, how do we uh, restrict bad actors from using that for bad, bad things? How do we ensure that this AGI doesn't have a secret plan by itself to, to, uh, to, to, to control humanity at some level? Um, so, so regulation will become a, a real challenge and the, the work field will also uh, be totally different from what we've seen before. Um, so we'll need to adapt uh, in terms of the economy. Uh, are we uh, willing to go into a, a minimum base salary for everybody? Um, how will we uh, change the society uh, to adapt to, to those new technologies? Okay, well, thank you so much for that. So now your turn. What question would you like to pose for our ne- next guest? So I have the privilege to have a young daughter. Uh, so my question will be about her future career opportunities. Uh, given how fast the jobs are, are being transformed by AI today, how do you think the next generation can best prepare themselves for the jobs of the future? Perfect. Well, that's, that, that's a very good question. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for joining me. Likewise. Thanks so much. And that wraps up another episode of AI Experience. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform. Your support counts and your comments can really help share this experience with others. You can also visit the website ai-experience.io to find out more. See you soon for a new episode.